You're listening to the Writers Forum, and I'm your host, Mike Tusa. Today, I'll be speaking with author Stephen Maitland Lewis about his new book, Legacy of Atonement. Stephen's lived quite an extraordinary life. He's an attorney, a former investment banker. He's owned a luxury hotel as well as a renowned restaurant. And he's also on the advisory board of the California Jazz Foundation, as well as being an award-winning author. And folks, I've omitted a few things. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me on it. I appreciate it. It's a great honor to be on your show. Oh, you're so kind. All right. Well, look, you have, in a sense, lived many types of lives. What made you decide to write, to be an author? Well, I've always written. Um, I've written for many years um, prior to becoming a novelist. I've written nonfiction, either about jazz or investments, um, world financial news, always nonfiction. And mm-hmm. then I became um, the editor of a supplement for the Daily Journal in Los Angeles, which is the oldest daily newspaper for the legal profession. And um, really, I always wanted to write fiction. And uh, I wrote my first fiction book about 20 years ago. And um, I'm very comfortable writing fiction. And uh, Mm -hmm. the research fascinates me. Um, it's easy to lose oneself and over-research. Yeah. But I, 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 um, I consider myself now a, a writer of fiction and not non-fiction. Well, the Legacy of Atonement book is excellent. So if, if, from my, if my opinion's worth anything, you certainly succeeded in that regard. But let, oh, me, ask you, you, let me ask you this. You, you're an attorney, and you mentioned, you know, um, being the editor of the Daily Journal, so you've obviously written legal briefs and motions and those types of things. Come talk not about really. not really? Okay. Not 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 really. Okay. Um, I, I did qualify as an attorney in England years ago, and was a, I was a, an associate member of the New York Bar Association when I moved to the states, but I never really practiced for very long. Okay. I worked when I was a lawyer with one of the very large firms internationally. And I was so far down on the totem pole <laughs> in that firm that um, I had no little or nil client contact. My writing for the Daily Journal was basically to summarize cases that um, California lawyers wrote in. Mm-hmm. Normally, the plaintiffs or the defendants' lawyers were very eager to get the results of the case publicized, especially, well, it was the, the winners wanted the case sub, uh, publicized <laughs> as much as possible. The right. losers wanted to avoid that. I, I understand. And um, so they would send a summary of their cases and the awards to me, and I would then write, write them up. Well, still, you're, you're summarizing cases in that. Is there any difference between the type of writing you had to do there and uh, transition to fiction writing? Oh, I was absolutely. When I was writing... The summaries of the cases, I was limited to a certain number of words, column inches. uh, And, of course, I was accountable. Uh, Writing fiction, I'm accountable only to the editors, uh, the editor who works for the publisher. I've got much more free reign to write as 
much or as little as, as I want. I only have to kowtow to the publisher. I understand. Well, you know, I had a, uh, an author on who is a judge in Chicago, and when I asked him the question about writing for, you know, legal purposes and writing fiction, he said, in his mind, there was no difference. And when I asked why, he said, well, in both you're telling stories. I wonder if you would agree with that. Oh, I, I wonder if he ever had to hear a medical negligence uh, <laughs> case or a, or a construction defect in a building in which there weren't probably 40 or 50 different law firms involved. Oh. A nightmare. I understand. Nightmare. I understand. Well, let's talk about the new book, Legacy of Atonement. Now, your main character is a gentleman named Daniel Levy. Um, let's talk about him. Tell what is his backstory. His backstory is that he was um, born in in, in France, um, and at the time of the outbreak of war. Well, just before the outbreak of war, he went to England to study English and to learn about the commodity world. And whilst he was in England, the the Germans moved into France, and that was the last he saw of his parents and Mm -hmm. other family members. And um, after the war, he he returned to France. Uh, Then he settled in Geneva and built up a substantial commodity trading business of his own. And um, he he became somewhat of a hero. Uh, um, In 1948, it's rather rather topical, actually, just to mention, in 1948, he he, uh, traveled to Israel and um, volunteered to serve for a time in the um, Israeli army and was injured and suffered a limp for the rest of his life, which continued to give him great pain. Um, he married. Uh, the marriage ended. and he, they, they, he and his former wife, they had twin sons. And um, the wife remarried. She remarried an Italian who became the Italian ambassador to Argentina. And... Uh, the plot thickens yes. because uh, it leads to uh, Daniel fi- participating and financing in um, trying to track down the funny games that were taking place yeah. in Paraguay uh, with regard to Nazis on the run. Well, let me ask you this, and, and tell me if, I've, if I'm misstating or overreading something. I had the sense, and perhaps because of his parents' death, that he's a, a gentleman who was struggling with what we might call survivor's guilt. You're absolutely right. I mean, um, your, your perception is bang on the mark. I applaud you for that. You, you, you read the book. Yes, I I'm did. I'm grateful. <laughs> but uh, yes, you're right. It, it was survivor's guilt that um, whilst he was languishing, it was languishing or studying and working in England, his, uh, his family vanished. Yes, survivor's guilt is absolutely right. Yeah, and it seemed to me that it had it had a profound effect on him. And but then also, and again, tell me if I'm missing this. As the story goes on, as the plot that you've so well laid out goes forward, it seems to me that he becomes much more reflective um, on his situation, on the people around him, those types of things. 
that, that's absolutely right. I think that um, prior to all this opening up in 1959, when, when the story began, he was a workaholic, very self-absorbed, very bitter about the breakup of his marriage. And um, it took the arrival of this cousin by marriage, that young girl, mm -hmm. knocking on his door late at night in Geneva in a very depressed and distressed state that really restored his, you could say, humanity. Yeah, I, in fact, my next question was to be to ask about the character of Giselle. Um, she, she really does open up his world, but she also evolves as the story progresses, which I thought she did a great job doing. Um, did you know at the start of the, writing the book, and maybe this goes to whether you're someone who outlines or whether you do it organically, did you know what role Giselle was going to play uh, in the book? Not at the beginning. Um, I didn't really see her when I started to write the book as someone whose character would would progress from being, um, I hate to use a word which is probably politically incorrect, but going from being, shall I say, a young bimbo yeah. to, to becoming, shall I say, a Joan of Arc type character yeah, who was yeah. basically leading the mission. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's certainly how it struck me. Think we should collaborate on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that you need my help, but you know, one of the things that struck me too, and and this is you know, look, good books have universal themes, no matter what they're about, and at least from my perspective, and these two characters, Daniel and Giselle, really help each other evolve in a certain way. Correct? That, that's absolutely true, and I didn't mean to. Um, I didn't want to dwell on it, but I mm -hmm. think at an early stage in the story, soon after Giselle appears on the scene, I think that um, Daniel probably uh, anticipated or hoped for some ro romantic entanglement with her. Mm. But um, obviously... That didn't develop. Right. Uh, he was conscious, probably, of the fact that he was old enough to be a father. Um, but I, I, I sort of felt that in the background, that for a short period of time, that might have crossed his mind okay. to have a go. Interesting. Well, listen, authors will often tell me that if they create a good character, that that character or characters help write the story was there any character, we've talked about Giselle and Danielle, there's certainly some other well-drawn characters. Was there any character or characters that helped you in that regard? In, in, in the story? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, just Daniel. Just Daniel, really. Um, the thing is, you, you alluded a, a, a few minutes uh -huh. ago to um, how, how authors plan yeah. their book. There, there are some authors I know who will spend a long, long time writing maybe a 30 or 40 page summary, chapter by chapter outline right. of, of the book, which then becomes their roadmap. Um, and then there are others who will do uh, an outline, maybe 
couple of paragraphs on each chapter. And so it ends up by being, instead of a 30, 40-page memo, it becomes a three- or four-page memo. I tend to do the latter because that still keeps one mm -hmm. able to be creative. You can make changes. You can add. You can subtract. You can change as you go along. If I mean, everybody's different. Everybody has a different approach. Sure. But right. I'm fearful of the very detailed 34-page memo because you then get locked into it. Yeah. And when you get locked into it, it's, it's, it keeps you from being free to make those changes, which may, may be helpful to the book. Sure. But, but you don't, your, your eyes are closed. You're, you're, you're blinkered. Uh -huh. So, well, yeah, go ahead. So that, that's how, in, in my case, Giselle's role changed from being the ingenue bimbo to being a powerful young woman. Mm -hmm. if, oh. if, if she would have been carved in stone in a 30 to 40 page chapter by chapter outline, she would have um, never changed. And therefore it would have, would have uh, led the, the story in a totally different direction. I see. So I like to keep it more fluid. And do you find, again, I've had some folks tell me this, do you find that as you're writing, because you kind of live with your characters while you're writing your book, right? I mean, you live with their well, I ideas uh, about uh, Not only that, my first book was called Hero on Three Continents. It uh -huh. was a fictional biography of an Englishman born in 1900 who died in 1979. It took me about two years to write that book. His name was Henry Brown. By the time I finished the book, I didn't know whether I was Henry Brown or who was Henry Brown. I was so immersed in that damn character right. that, that, that it could drive one screwy. Well, you know, all right, so I was going to ask you this late in the interview, but since you mentioned that, uh, I'm always intrigued by this, so I'm going to ask you this question. When an author takes a fictional character, okay, uh, Daniel Levy or your gentleman from the other book, puts them in certain circumstances and has to have and has to figure out how they get out of those circumstances. Do you learn anything about yourself? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, oh my goodness gracious. That was, that was a, that was a hard one. To tackle. <laughs> um, I hope so. I mean, the answer is I hope so because you always want to sort of learn from something. I'm trying to think specifically. Uh, I think from Daniel in Legacy of Atonement, I, I think I learned something, and that was basically uh, in life, one shouldn't be too black and white. Ah. One should be open, open to other people's points of view, open to make changes where where it's necessary yeah. or, or, or helpful. He changed from being a workaholic, selfish mm -hmm. person to becoming, you know, a thoroughly decent, generous, kind and a loving person. So, yeah. yes, I, I think one tries to, should, should try and learn. Okay. Likewise, if one's writing about someone who's evil, uh, one, one, should, one should learn uh, not to emulate that person and do everything uh, contrary to the character you're writing about. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, so the story, 
uh, Legacy of Atonement starts in March of 1959. And during the course of the story, Daniel, for various reasons that you, you want to read about in the book, travels to different places, Hong Kong, Paraguay, for example. Now, you've traveled all over the world, but did you have to do any research on these different locations, or were you already familiar with uh, the areas that you were going to write about? I was totally unfamiliar with Paraguay. I hadn't been there, and I've never been there. Um, it was the only thing I knew about Paraguay was that, A, it's uh, landlocked, and uh, that it was uh, the president of it at the time, Stroessner, was, was very sympathetic to, to the Nazis. Um, I knew very little about it, so I did have to do research on it. Okay. Well, without getting into too much specifics, again, I don't, we don't want to reveal too much of the story, it does harken back to some things that relate to World War II. Um, were you familiar with this history, or did, is that another area that you had to do some more research on? No, I was pretty familiar with um, World War II history, not the military aspects of it as, mm -hmm. you know, where were the German panzer tanks and where was Rommel and Montgomery? Right. I, was, I was not good on that sort of thing. But the political side of the Second World War, yes, I was, I, I, I was uh, very, you know, knowledgeable about that. But of course, I had to do research to make sure that I was up to date and that my facts were right. Because there's always someone out there, a reader, who <laughs> if you get one thing wrong, they'll challenge you on it. Yeah, and uh, yeah. then they lose interest in the book. Yeah, that, that's you know, true. If, if you come out with a, with something that is blatantly inaccurate on page 73 and the, the reader gets uh, annoyed and aggravated by that error mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to turn to page 74 they'll just put the book down yeah so yeah. one has to check and double check that sort of thing now in the book besides the characters we've mentioned giselle and daniel levy there are several characters and i thought this again worked so well who are not really what they present themselves to be they hold allegiances or beliefs that seem antithetical to, you know, to how they present themselves. Antonio and Guy, I guess, would be examples. Yeah, do, you, yeah. do you find, as a writer, that writing flawed characters or characters like this are more interesting to write about? Yeah, absolutely. What is it about those types of characters that, um, that readers identify with, if you, if you know? Um, you know, I, 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 I don't... I don't know I've got an easy answer to that. Yeah. Other than to say, when you're writing about good characters, decent people, 99% of people that you come across on a daily life, let's face it, or 90%, are decent people. Um, the number of real rotters that I'm sure you and I have met over our lifetime is much, much smaller, hopefully, <laughs> than the good people. The, the villains are in the minority. Right. So I think that when you write about a villain, it's generally someone who normal people, normal times, don't really come across in day-to-day -day life. They read about them. We all, we all know that Hitler and Stalin and... Mm -hmm. and uh, mass murderers, an evil swine. But how many of them do we actually come across 
in our day-to-day life. We, we read about them, but we don't. The man next door is not Hitler. The right. man next door is not Stalin or necessarily a, a bank robber. So I think it's because these people, this, this milieu of bad people is an unknown commodity to most people. It makes them good material to read about. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that struck me as I learned, as the characters unfolded, using Antonio and Guy as the examples, um, is it seemed really relevant to, to current times. And not to get too far afield, um, you know, there are any number of people that we know or we thought we knew, and then they start to spout a particular political view or whatever that felt like it came out of left field. And so I, I sense that with these characters, and so that gave me a sense of identity. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And um, the comparison to which you just alluded is spot on with, with regard to people espousing their political thoughts, mm-hmm. which come as a great shock that, that, that people might have those views uh, in the light of what other people consider just uh, off the charts. Yeah, so suddenly yeah, find yeah. one's friends or relatives and espousing them comes as a bit of a shock. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, families are, I've read of families that have broken up over yes, these absolutely. political differences. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously one of the threads in the story, we might say, is anti-Semitism. And it seems, you know, extraordinarily relevant right now. Uh, but were you thinking about that at the time you wrote the book, that, you know, I want to put this out there so people don't forget? Um, yes. I've written, oh, I don't know, two or three four books where Nazis, uh, there's, there's a Nazi plot or a subplot. It, it always sort of creeps in a bit. So... Um, the answer to that is yes, and of course this is this is uh, a week where this is uh, at the forefront. But I, obviously, when I started to write the book, this book, Legacy of Atonement, I never envisaged that there would be a week quite like this. Sure. Well, you know, we we to consist continue with that thought. We we do live in a politically charged environment, and. You know, books are being banned, authors are being harassed. Are there any topics that you ever try to avoid in your writing? Or you say, you know what, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, I don't in any way write anything like about science fiction. Right. For instance, that that is a a taboo. I don't write graphic violence. Mm -hmm. Um because I'm not capable of writing it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, um, I don't write explicit right. sex in a book, not because I'm a prude, but, but um, it, it, it's, very hard. It's, it's very hard to do, to sure. tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, uh, other topics... Um, I try and keep my books uh, around the 20th century. Uh-huh. I don't. I, I would find it very difficult to write 
a piece about 16th century, 17th century, 19th century I could probably get away with. But um, anything older than that, I would slip up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I try and keep within contemporary times. Well, you know, in the book, Legacy of Atonement, your new book, I mean, I think that the the issues, what we might call the political issues, they're not really political, but in a sense, the things that you, you want to think about are there, they're present, you can't avoid them, but they're not like a sledgehammer hitting you in the face. And so I know it caused some reflection by me, and I think probably that's what you're going to get from most readers. So Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Um, well, I hope that's the case. Yeah. I think so. You know, you know I hope that the reader finds the book sufficiently interesting that it might sort of stimulate some thoughts that they yeah. may have yeah. about yeah. the period yeah. and, um, uh, and encourage them to read the book and spread the word. Yes. So therefore, I appreciate what you're yeah, doing yeah. in this program with, with me this morning. All right. Well, let me ask this. I only got time for maybe one or two more, but... The way that the book ends, without getting into too much detail, suggests to me that there might be a sequel. Am I correct? Well, I don't know. You're very psychic. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I'm writing one at the moment. In fact, I've just come back from a, tri a trip to Morocco oh. to, to do some possible research on, um, oh. on an aspect of the sequel. Okay. Uh, you, you got that right. Okay. Well, does it, uh, without getting too far ahead, does it have a working title? No, not yet. Okay. All right. Not, All right. Yet. not yet. Okay. All right. Well, let me end with this because we're going to run out of time here in a second. You've, been, you've written numerous books here. So one of the things that happens here at the show is when we get letters that come in, sometimes, you know, they are from young folks or folks who are retired who are thinking about writing. What's the best advice that you can give to a, a wannabe writer who now has the time and is ready to start? Um, okay. I think the advice that I would give is something that I learned myself. When you sit down in front of the computer and you write the book, the first draft, and you print it out, you've run it through a spell check, You've formatted the page, you print it out, and it looks really good. The danger is to think you've got a finished product. Yeah. Uh, the first draft is usually replete <laughs> with errors. Um, and it may be too long. Uh, you, you, you may have got carried away and included subplots which slow the story down and have no relevance. The first draft, however pretty it looks, is not the final product. Okay. You have to revise, 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 revise. And you need also someone with an objective eye, an, uh, 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 an editor or someone who's knowledgeable in this field to read the book and um, see it through different eyes. See it not from the point of view of the, the writer, but as the the reader, and only a, a second person can do that. Yeah, yeah. And then when that person 
goes back to the writer and says, this is too long, This is the, you need to change this, you need to do that, you need to do the other. You've got to keep your cool as the writer and not be defensive <laughs> and, and quarrel with the editor. You've got to sit and listen and reflect because 99% of the time, whoever you've asked to review the book um, is telling you something that you need to know. Yeah. And that person should not be... Uh, a close friend or a relative who says, oh, it's wonderful, oh, it's marvelous, right. oh, it's the best thing I've read since Shakespeare. No, you need someone totally, totally objective who tell you like it is. If it's, if it's lousy, you've got to say so. If it's good, you've got to say so. But um, the, the first draft is generally rubbish. <laughs> but after it's been trimmed and pruned and finessed, by the third or fourth draft, you, you may have something. That's ex exceptionally good advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, Stephen. So you've been listening to the Writers' Forum, folks, and I've been speaking with author Stephen Maitland Lewis about his new book, Legacy of Atonement. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a good one. Steve, Stephen, is there a website or other social media site that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about the book? Well, I, I do have a website, smaitlandlewis.com, but I'm also at the Latter Library in New Orleans on November the 2nd, discussing the book with um, John Poult, who is a New Orleans celebrity yes. character. You may know him. Yes. He's a good friend. And um, the two of us are at the Latter Library on November 2nd at 5.30. Okay. So, Maitland Lewis, for folks, that's spelled M A I T. L-A-N-D, and of course, Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. There's an S before the M, so it's all one word. Maitland Lewis at AOL. Ah, okay. Um, well, thanks for being on the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. It was a great honor, and I appreciate it a lot. Thank, Thank you. Fine. Folks, music for the show was provided by our own Valerie Hunt Jester, and audio and production for the show is by Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 o'clock or Wednesday morning at 5.30 in the morning for the next segment of the Writers' Forum.